Okay, so we're going to review just for a second what the glory of God is just yet one more time. The glory of God is the sum total of all of God's attributes. And if God, if we could see God in all of his glory, we would all be like everybody in the Old Testament. We're going to cover some of them today. We would be falling down on our face because we just, I mean, just think about how impressed we are with the guy that's, you know, sending their little rocket ship, you know, William Shatner is going into space. I think that's so amusing to me. Um, but, uh, and we're so impressed with all of that, yet um, the creator of the universe who made everything in six days um, gets not much glory these days, not much at all. Um, and as we walk out, and that's my encouragement to you and to explore and see the beauty that he's created and know that and he will speak to us and it, we will become personally engaged with the creator. That's what he wants. That's what he started with in the, in the Garden of Eden. So the glory is the sum total of all his attributes and um, just in uh, we have said that um, the church in America is skewed in our thinking towards God. We've taken a wrong turn. We've lost our way. We've minimized him so that we can understand him. And instead, David says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Um, we have turned God into something like our iPhones that we keep in our pocket, and we pull him out when we need something. Um, and instead of revering him for the creator and the sustainer of the universe, um, he's become, you know, we feel like we're in charge. And honestly, the glory of God is when we really start seeing that it's really him. <laughs> and um, so that is Calvin, John Calvin writes, the glory of God is really when we know who he is. When he went, and you know, Paul writes in uh, Corinthians, he says, you know, one day, you know, right now we see in the mirror dimly, but one day we're gonna see face to face and we will know fully as we are fully known. That's going to happen. Um, so, and we long for that day. But the whole point in the scripture is, is that we start in our glorification of him now, where we are, um, acknowledging who he is, and that in essence, and this is why I, you know, have my little string here, um, somewhere here, I have my string that that is the red scarlet thread that is woven through scripture, the glory of God, um, because I want us to understand that this is a process that we're in, and it's also called our sanctification. As we grow more spiritually, we get more and more like Jesus. We see him more and more clearly, and this is something that he's doing, and then one day we will all bow. The Bible says it's very clear. Saved and unsaved is going to all our knees will bow before him um, when he really shows us who he is when he comes again. So that's a whole nother lesson. But um, we must believe that uh, we that our job is to glorify him. Um, we said scriptures, lots of scriptures about that. And um, we basically, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's pretty clear. Um, Matthew 5 says, you know, let your light shine before... <clears throat> The world in such a way that men see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So everything that we do is to glorify him. Jesus said, you know, by this is my Father glorified that you 
follow my commandments, <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> That's uh, John 15, I'll get there. <laughs> so I don't misquote that for you. But um, <clears throat> I feel so strongly that we um, are in a place where man is so magnified. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, our world looks that way. But even we do that. And sometimes we've made ourselves the throne of our life instead of having him be the throne of our life. And um, so I feel like we need to back up and see what he says um, about his glory. Because, like we said on the first lesson, there is going to be a test. So, somewhere it says here, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Thank you. I remembered it. <laughs> so that's how we glorify him. Um, by being connected to him... And then he supplies the fruit. See, it's interesting. Yes. Okay. By, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So that's John 15 something. I couldn't find it. Um, but I'm just saying that this is, that our, we are to be reflective of his glory. Um, and it's kind of like if I took a prism outside and the light sh shone through. Did you see there's a rainbow today? There's a rainbow in it's Palm City. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's weird how that is. Um, but if I took a prism, see, I'm the prism, okay? But, and my prism doesn't do anything until the light shines through my prism. And then all of a sudden you see these little rainbows everywhere. And, and that's our good works, okay, that glorify God. And why do they glorify God? Because if there was no light, there would be no rainbows, right? So, so that's kind of where we are. And our job is to be clear and clean so that his light can pour through us in such a way that men see what we do and glorify him, give him the glory that is due him. Okay, so um, God himself is a glorious being. Uh, glory belongs to him as light and heat belong to the sun. Um, he is due glory. Um, he's not, not, like John Piper said, he's not like a middle school girl looking for a compliment. He is owed glory. And when we see him as he is, and we'll just, we're going to track through the, some of the Old Testament, they all fell on their face because he is glorious. And, um, and to withhold glory from him becomes a huge problem. Um, so, that's where we started with. Um, glory is a, a noun, a verb, and a uh, something else. Adjective, thank you. Okay, so, so we started, and because the, all the theologians, all my dead guys say that the glory of God is really the theme, the overarching theme of the entire story... The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we see that if that's our prime directive is to give him glory, then I want to show you that that's throughout scripture, okay? And so that's why I'm, I started last week with the Garden of Eden, and we're going to plod through the Old Testament, to finish the Old Testament this week. But I want you to see that it's not, I'm not making it up. I want you to see these verses. And if you do homework, you can kind of, there's lots more verses. Or you can just Google glory of God and 
all kinds of verses will come up. It's amazing. Um, but it's that it's rooted in scripture is so important for you to know. Okay, so we started, and let me just revert, let me go back for just a second. And we talked about God's glory is his presence, okay? And how his presence was in the Garden of Eden. He created man for fellowship with him in this beautiful garden, and everything was going just ducky. And every day, God would come in the cool of the day, and they would, they would enjoy his presence, okay? They would enjoy, and presence and glory are kind of intertwined here. Um, so, so we enjoyed his presence, but then we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and they became sinful, and God cannot abide sin. So now God had, they had to leave the garden. So the angel came, set up his little flaming sword so they couldn't get to the tree of life because God said, if you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. And die is really not just die physically, but die spiritually, um, so that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. So we talked about that. And if you want to do a timeline, I did go back this today um, because we're covering basically all we're going to cover by the end of today. We're going to cover 4,000 years. OK, <laughs> so the creation, if most conservative theologians believe was around 4,000 B.C., not 16 million years ago, but I'm not going to touch that, but. Most conservative theologians believe that the man was created about 4,000 years ago. And so we, had, we covered him. We covered how when God went into the garden, man hid from him because of his sinfulness. And God was the first one to shed blood to, to atone or cover, make a covering for them. Um, again, this is a theme that is constantly, you will see up until Jesus comes again. Um, it was animal blood, yes. Because that in the Old Testament, that's what sacrifices were. Um, so, so paradise was lost, and man was driven out of the garden. Uh, then we see Noah. We see sin just abounds. Um, and in the story of Noah, which is about 2,500 B.C., um, according to most theologians, and again, you know, it's not, this is not in Scripture. I can't say it's for sure true. But God's glory um, was not mentioned all of that time. That's the first six uh, chapters because sin is abounding in the world. It's flourishing. And then we get to the time of Noah and God says uh, the wickedness of man was on earth and that every intention of his, and thoughts of his hearts were evil and the Lord regretted he made the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And so that's how we started the flood. After the flood, we wind up with eight people. And, but even at that point, at, uh, God says in Genesis 8, after the flood, he said, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of the man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we're seeing that even though God changed the circumstances and now evil does evil is stayed because now we have righteous men living in the world that the heart of the ism of man is bent towards evil and we see that all through that um, that is Genesis 6:8 so then we have so God says to disperse remember and what does man do they gather so that's why we have the Tower of Babel. What is the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel is man trying to reach heaven on his own, away from God, not listening to what God has to say. So what does God do? God comes down, 
and gives them lots of languages. But he says to them, whatever I put it, whatever they put in their heart, they will do. Um, that is an interesting promise. In Genesis eleven four, uh, no uh, six, it says, and nothing that they purpose to do will become impossible to them, um, because God gave us that kind of potential. The potential for us that he gave us is incredible. So I'm happy for Will Shatner to be going up into space finally. <laughs> I'm happy for that. But yet, that's nothing compared to God. Yeah, Claudia? When you say whatever is in their heart, they will do. Do you mean like you saw them reap what's in their heart? Um, no, I think he's talking about their really their potential. Whatever they put their minds to do, they can, I've given them the ability to accomplish uh, whatever they set in their mind to do. Um, I think that it's really about our potential, not necessarily... Um, not even so. It's like, like technology. Like, whoever invented technology. Whatever goes into a person's mind, they can accomplish. Their gifts. Yeah, their gifts. Because God has gifted us. And honestly, a lot of what you see happening in the world is just our giftedness being put to things that really, you know, are not important to his kingdom. But when you do things according to your gifts for his kingdom, oh man, you are in a sweet spot right there. And God blesses you and you have all kinds of joy. Um, it's a neat thing when you, when everything, when all the, everything gets in alignment, you know, and his power, his gifts, your potential and bring bring a, a great work that gives him glory, um, man, I don't know that you can get any happier than that because it's just, it's sort of, it's just sweet. So we have, so the Tower of Babel happens, man separates, God has to physically separate them using the languages. And then we have the period of the patriarchs we talked about. That's 2100 to 1800 BC, if you want to know. Luke, um, the times. <laughs> so, so we have the period of the patriarchs. God says, listen, you know, this me and the whole world is not working so good, so I'm going to choose this righteous man, and through him, all the nations of the world is going to be blessed. And that was his, this is God's science experiment. I'm going to take a, a people, I'm going to call them by my name, I'm going to give them laws, and it's going to attract such great attention that everyone in the world will be blessed, except that we know it didn't work out that way. Because even though, because again, we see that it's a heart problem, okay? So Abraham, he's a righteous man. We see him, um, he sees God in his glory. Um, and uh, we see Job, we talked about Job, how Job was a righteous man at that same time period um, and questioned God and God had to answer him from the whirlwind. And again, so we, we see that um, Job says, now <laughs> I've heard of you by the hearing of it, my ear, but now my eye sees you and I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So again, whenever we see this presence of God, that's his, we sense it, we're seeing his glory and we see the results are almost always the same. And that is we repent in dust and ashes because when we see him for who he is, we know that we are yet but dust, like David calls us. So... So then we see, uh, so, so the children of Israel get to um, go, well, I should say, Joseph goes, takes everyone to uh, Egypt, right, because of the famine in the land. And for four, 400 years, the children of Israel um, are in Egypt, and they become slaves to the Pharaoh. And God hears their voice and their suffering, 
and he appoints Moses, okay? So Moses is in charge now of leaving this, these people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And God says, and Moses says, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it unless you come with me. And uh, so it's interesting because we have an exodus, which is 1450 B.C. Um, we see God's glory on parade. And we see um, Moses saying, tell me, tell me your name. And God says, my name out of the flaming bush, you know, the burning bush. My name is Yahweh. I, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. And then later on, Moses says, well, show me, tell me your glory. And God's glory appears. And we covered that last week. And if, you know, it's in the homework. So if you want to read, read it because it's so good. You see God's glory in such a magnificent way as he speaks with Moses. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock because he says, no man can see my glory and live. Um, That's why we need glorified bodies when we get up to heaven so we can see his glory and live. Um, He's going to physically change us. So Moses has these great, great times with the Lord. And he comes down, his face is shining, and what does he find? The golden calf and all kinds of craziness. So he's, he takes, um, he, he, he keeps representing, and God says to him, I am going to come and show myself to them. So he was the, so God shows himself as the fire on the mountain, and they say, whoa, 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 I, we, you know, that's too much for us. Moses, it's better if you just go and then you just come tell us what's happening. <laughs> so, <laughs> because God's glory was so terrifying to them that they said, Moses, we'll just listen to you. Except that they didn't. <laughs> and so we have them going up to the promised land, sending the 12 spies. Jake, uh, Joseph and uh, I mean, uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb come back and say, oh my gosh, the land is awesome. They have grapes, huge grapes, and, and it, everything's great, except for there's a, some, a small problem. There's giants in the land. And the other 10 spines say, oh my gosh, God has left us here to die, and we, you know, we want to go back to Egypt. We want a new leader. And um, God gets a little frustrated with them. And uh, Moses, and this is the important part because I want you to see. So, so Moses is pleading for them and says, um, you can't, you can't, you can't. God says, I'm going to just kill them all. And then I'm going to just start my line with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, you can't do that because, you know, Egypt and, you know, people know who you are. And, and so, so Moses is so, you know, beautiful in his, um, in his prayer that just intercedes for these people of Israel. And God says, okay, okay, well, I'll send, um, you go down there, but I'm not going to go with you because if I go with them, this, these, are, these, these people like annoy me He's, and I might kill them on the way. So I'm not going to go with them. And Moses says, if you ain't going, I ain't going. I ain't going because you have to go with me. And every time you see this presence of God in this, these accounts, we see his glory. It's shining. It's radiant. It's fearful. Yeah. Um, I think I have this right. Right. See, Moses would always bring back God's word. And in fact, all the great intercessors. Uh, first, of, to be a good intercessor, first of all, um, you've got, you, you come between and you say, you know, and it's interesting because he, 
All the times, and it's many times during the 40 years, he's coming between God and God's wrath, and he's saying, you know, remember what your promises were. And it's all about not our behavior. It's all about who you are, because that's what God's glory is. It's who he is. So it's, um, it's sort of a, and it's a, such a beautiful story. Um, but he prays, the let the Lord go in the midst of us, um, and God's intention was to have his presence remain with the children of Israel. He gives them a thing called the tabernacle. See, we, first we have the tent of the meeting, um, and that's the beginning, and the cloud comes, remember? And his glory is in the cloud, and, my, and Moses' face is shining. Then when, God go, when he goes up to the mountain, gets all the 613 laws, he comes back and he says, okay, God's plan is to have an Ark of the Covenant, to have a tabernacle inside the, the tent of the meeting. So, so now God's glory is going to be resting in the Ark of the Covenant, and, and that, that is going to be the displaying of his radiance. And so we are going to be sanctified by, by, um, by, it says, by his presence. Um, okay, so... So anyway, so so we know the story. So they they uh, forty years they because they refuse to go in the land. Forty years generation happens. Then they go into the land, and that's where we ended last week. Was we Moses doesn't get to go into the land, which is so wrong in my opinion. But see, God didn't ask my opinion. <laughs> so Moses has to wait and he sends Joshua, who by the way is interesting because Joshua's all through this account because Joshua would go with, with Moses and whenever he would see the glory of God, Joshua would kind of hang back. And it says that Moses would go out, would go and tell the people what God said and Joshua stayed there. So Joshua like really understood the glory of God too. So Joshua... Uh, so now we start with the, the people go into the promised land. You know, we have Jericho the, and we have the people going out and living and inhabiting this land. Um, so now we start the period of the judges. Okay. So the period of the judges is from 1300 to 1065 BC. And the best way to summarize the period of the judges is that every man did what was right in their own eyes. It's, that's a, a phrase that's all through the book of Judges. Um, and so God appoints judges to lead these children and to judge what's right and wrong and to try to help them to obey God's law. Um, it was not a great... Um, it didn't work so great. Um, the Ark of the Covenant at that time lived in Jerusalem... And well, actually, it lived in different places. But God's glory was uh, seen in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant became the representation of God and His presence to the children of Israel. And that worked really great until the ark was stolen by the Philistines. Okay, so they're in these, they're in the land of Canaan, and again, all these people that they've conquered are coming back and conquering them, and so there's all kinds of warfare going on. And the period of the judges, again, you know, was not a great period. They didn't obey the judges. Um, but, and so every time, and it was a cycle. Like God would send them somebody, they would listen to him, everything, they would obey his commandments, and everything was great for that period of the judge. And then they would forget, they would fall into, back into an idolatry, 
they would God would allow them to be taken captive by different various different peoples, and then they would cry out in the midst of this and say, "God, where are you?" And then God would send somebody. And so this happened like ten times in the period of Judges. Okay, but in the meantime, the Ark of the Covenant moved around, and that was what they consider God's glory. So when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, um, it was really it was. Um, it was like a huge defeat for them. Um, and actually, Eli um, was, when he heard of it, his two sons died. He heard that the ark had been captured by the Philistine. He fell back and died. Um, hit his head and dead. And he was dead. And that was the, and that he was one of the second to the last judge. Um, his daughter-in-law had a baby at that same time. And when she heard that the ark had left, she named her child Ichabod. Remember we said glory was Kabod? Ichabod means the glory has departed because that's they saw the Ark of the Covenant as God's presence and God's presence had left the people. So God brings the Ark back in a very amusing way. You can read it about it in the period in Judges. But um, he bring because the Ark didn't work so good for the Philistines. So God sent plagues and finally they said, you know, we've had enough of this Ark. And because they kept moving it around to different towns and the plagues would follow him and it was pretty amusing. And finally they set the plagues with their little sacrifice. They set the ark and they put two cows and said, go that way. And that's how they sent it back. Um, so again, so the ark, uh, so, uh, so, so that's that story. That, uh, the Ichabod is in 1 Samuel 4, 7, 4, chapter 4. You can read that, that. So after the period of the judges... Um, what happened, Samuel has two sons. Um, remember, Eli had two sons. They were wicked. Samuel has two sons. They were wicked. And the people finally say, you know what? This ain't working for us, this judge thing. We want a king. We want a king like everyone else. So that starts the period of the kings, and that starts starting with Saul in 1050 B.C. What, to, what chapter verse are we in? Okay, so we are in, right now we are in kings, and I should say... We're going to, well, it's, I'm in Chronicles. Chronicles 1 is the turning over of the kingdom from David to Solomon. But the timeline might be in, um, at the beginning of 1 Kings, if you have that. Right. Yes. It'll tell you the timeline at the top. So, it, but it's, the time actually, and this is, we're pretty sure about these dates. 1050 begins Saul's reign till 930 is the end of Solomon's reign. And these are the, these, this is when the kings... The kings are all good kings, yes. Was the judges, were they picked based on the sons? Is that what you meant by the wicked sons? Um, sometimes they did, but God really usually just pulled them out of nowhere, like Gideon and, you know, and... So they were appointed by God. They were, they were kind of called by God, and God visited them, and then God told them what to do, and they did it, and then, like with Gideon... Um, they, they wound up having success over the Midianites, but God got the glory because remember he changed the army, went down, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller. Wasn't, um, Saul picked because he was tall and handsome? Yep. <laughs> he was, um, but, uh, and that didn't work out so well. Um, but, uh, again, um, God said he was in that though. So it, it was an interesting, you can read that whole story. But Saul got too big for his britches, um, and he well, disobeyed he God. Yeah, he got to, and, and again, he was, 
no, there was nobody that was taller or more handsome than him. So again, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so that's what I can just tell you. So Saul um, sets himself, and instead of following Samuel, Samuel's still judging the people at this time. And instead of obeying Samuel, he does his own thing. He, li- he disobeys God, and God removes his spirit from him. Now, in the Old Testament, you have to realize the Spirit of God is something that came and went. It came to the people that made the ark, and they did beautiful workmanship. It came to the people that did the temple, and then it left. It it came for a purpose, and then it left. And that's why when David, after he sinned in Psalm 51, he says, Take not thy spirit from me, because he knew. He he remembered Saul when God took his spirit. Saul almost kind of lost his mind. So, so, it, so God's glory at this time um, became, came to the kings. And David finally becomes king. He writes so many beautiful psalms uh, of praise to God's glory. I mean, it's all through the psalms. You just can't escape it. Um, our memory verse is Psalm 96, 8, and 9. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering, come to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all you earth. Um, Psalms 3, 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. Um, Psalm 72, 18 through 20 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone has done wondrous things. Blessed be his name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And these, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now that's, his pr- that's kind of the going out, and then we have Solomon coming up. And I can't tell you all the good stuff about David. Um, he was a man after God's own heart. Again, God was interested always about what was in our heart. It was not about anything other than our heart. And, G- and David was a man after that sought God's heart. Um, but he made huge mistakes, and God, uh, and he had paid the penalty for his 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 family was a, ran amok because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So David, though, starts and ends his life giving glory to God. Um, he messes up just like all of us in between. Um, he writes Psalm fifty one, which is one of the most beautiful psalms of. Contrition. I mean, he's so sorry for messing up. Um, and it's a cool thing because he hands over the kingdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon, um, and so in this time of David, David, because he was a man of bloodshed, God, because he wanted to build God a temple, a temple worthy of his glory. And God said, nope, it's for, your, it's for the next one. So, so he appoints Solomon to build this beautiful temple. And Solomon builds this beautiful temple. And the glory of God comes down in an amazing thing. But before I get there, I want to tell you something about Solomon. Because Solomon, unlike David, he starts really well, like David, but he doesn't end well. At the end of Solomon's life, it says his heart was divided. Um, he did not worship God with his whole heart. And because of all the things that happened with Solomon, he got too big for his britches at the end. He had way too many women that had way too many gods. And, and he brought upon himself um, a, not, a not great ending, but he starts so good. So this is uh, in First Chronicles 1. Um, 
we have a visitation, a presence of God. And it says, in the night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I give, ask, and I will give it to you. And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and you have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over these people, numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before these people, for who can govern these people of yours, which, is, which are so great? And God answered Solomon, because it was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, and that word honor is kabod, glory. You haven't asked, you haven't looked for glory or the life of those who hate you, or even, you've not even asked for long life, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge will be granted to you, and I will also give you riches, possession, honor, slash glory, such as none of the kings who were before you, and none after you will be like. So the pinnacle... So God's glory now is going to be coming into the temple that Solomon, who asked for wisdom, um, uh, is going to create. So, so David's still alive. I mean, David's still alive, um, and he builds. Uh, Solomon builds this temple, and it says in Second Chronicles seven one through three, you have this huge epiphany of God's glory. You have this huge Shekinah glory. And it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, and this is prayer dedicating the temple, fire comes down from heaven and consumed the birth offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled God's house. And when all of the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So this is the pinnacle of God's glory. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, it's short-lived. Um, Solomon eventually... Um, <coughs> He writes the, the Proverbs, which are the most relevant scripture for today. If you haven't been reading Proverbs, I mean, Proverbs is, you know, everybody should teach their children Proverbs and grandchildren Proverbs. They, they are just the facts of life. Um, and Solomon wrote those because he was given, he didn't ask for it, but he was given such great wisdom from God. Um, they're awesome. But Solomon eventually, um, because it was in those times, this was God's never original plan. God's original plan was one man, one wife, and that was it. Um, but back in those days, they, they acquired territories and they established peace by marrying the daughters of kings. So that's what Solomon starts to do. And he winds up having all these different wives. And because they're coming into his kingdom... And he's establishing peace. And let me tell you, this is the height of the Israeli nation at this point. Um, it is huge. They have a huge kingdom. Everyone knows who Solomon is. Remember, you have the stories of, you know, Sheba, the, uh, what's, what's her name, comes? Um, no, Queen of Sheba comes. Uh, I, I mean, every, everyone knows about the wisdom of Solomon. 
because he's established this peace, but he didn't do it like trusting in God. He did it by marrying. And all these women wanted to bring their own gods. And so that sets up Israel for the fall of Israel. Um, because what happens is David's kingdom gets split. Well, Solomon has a son. He's not a great son. Anyway, it's, the kingdom splits. And all of a sudden, we have two periods. We, we have Israel is now a divided country. We have the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. And both of them have kings, two out of three kings, that don't worship God. And these, the kings that don't worship God, they have all these other, now they have all these idols and these, and, and they start setting up religions that are contrary to what God has commanded. So instead of Israel being um, a nation founded on one God, there's many gods. And God said, when he made, when he picked them, he said, if you obey my laws, I will bless you and you are going to be a light to the nations. But if you don't, then I'll curse you. So this is what's happening right now in, this, in the history of the world is um, Israel now has had many kings and many kings have not honored God. So God raises up, and this is now the period of the prophets. Now the kings keep going until 586, which is the last king in, that's in the Babylonian captivity. But also along that is now the period of the prophets because God starts raising up men who see him in his glory, who are warning the people that God's judgment is coming if they don't turn back to him. Okay? So we start the period of the prophets, and that starts kind of with Elijah at about 900 um, B.C., and it goes to Malachi, which is about 400 B.C. So you have a period of, and this is captured in the books of Kings and First uh, and Second Kings, First and Chronicles, all this. And it's, a, it's very very easy to read and uh and it says uh Uzziah became king or Hezekiah became king and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or Ahab became king and he was there was no greater there was no worse sinner on the planet than Ahab according to scriptures okay so I mean it was the periods go go very quickly so Solomon fills, uh, so the glory of the Lord fills, his te- fills the temple, but the people fall away from him. And so th- the next real huge encounter with the glory of God really is Elijah. Um, so Elijah, the, the king's split, the split and uh, Ahab rules the northern kingdom. Um, and so Elijah, God calls Elijah to start correcting what was now very wrong. Because at this point, all those gods that Solomon had brought in, now everyone's worshiping these gods, the Asherah and the Baal. They are sacrificing, these kings actually sacrificed their own children to the god of Moloch. That's how far they had come away from the glory of God. Um, so, so God in, invites these ordinary guys to come and to set things right. So you know the story of Elijah you know, Elijah confronts and he says, Israel, how are you, how long are you going to be hung in stays between God, God, uh, Yahweh and all these other guys? Let's, let's have a little, let's have a little showdown. So they had the showdown on Mount Carmel, remember? Mm -hmm. And, and God and 
and the, the prophets and all the prophetesses begged their gods, the Asherah and the Baal, to come light the fire. Nothing. They whipped themselves. Nothing. And then Elijah looks up, because it's now his turn. He says, if I be a man of God, let fire come out of heaven and consume the altar. And ba-boom. Okay. So God's glory turned. The people of Israel saw that God was truly the God. Um, but Ahab and Jezebel, the most wicked couple to ever lead Israel, um, put it in their hearts that they're killing that guy. And he is not long for this world. And God, and Elijah, who saw God perform this great miracle, fire coming out of heaven to consume the altar, everyone, you know, everyone uh, turns to him. He's all of a sudden scared. Um, you know, we are all full of many, many strengths and many, many weaknesses. So to him who thinks he stand, let's he, let's he fall, because Elijah had it all going together. But yet he was afraid of Jezebel, and he ran from Jezebel. And he ran all the way up to the mountain of God, which was Mount Horeb, and he said, I'm done, I'm done. And God, who in his glory, but also in his gentleness, let's read what it says, because it's so beautiful, such a beautiful picture. Because again, God's glory is his presence, and his <coughs> presence comes interestingly enough to Elijah. So Where are we, now? we are now in 1 Kings 19. And we're in the period of the prophets. So after this whole thing with the Mount Horeb and the fire coming down, uh, Elijah says, but he himself, I'm in four verses eight, first Kings 19, four through eight. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Yahweh. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's in the depths of depression. And isn't that, I mean, I like hearing my heroes being in the depths of, because it gives us validation. David, too, experienced depression. Um, This is not something unusual or God, you know, forsaking. Um, He says, I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord. Now, note to say, when the Bible in the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, that's a theophany or a Christophany. That the angel of the Lord is Christ before he came, the pre-incarnate Christ. So Christ actually came to Elijah and said, honey, it's going to be okay. He didn't say that, but that's what he, he says. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went on the strength of that food 40 days and night to Horeb, the mount of God. So he comes to, yep. Well, uh, the angel. What is that called? Christophany. A Christophany? Mm-hmm. And that is any time, that is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. That's who that is, the angel of the Lord. And I can tell you, I'd have to go back and show you, but it's pretty obvious in scriptures. And there's many angels of the Lord that are not the angel, but the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Well, this is, a theophany means it's, it's a physical presence of who God is. So it, it is... Um, 
I mean, it's who God is, but it's, it's, man, Claudia, when you start getting about the Trinity, it gets really confusing because they're all God. <laughs> um, but it's a special way that he communed with and showed his presence to them. Um, and in the mind of Elijah, who um, uh, communicated this story, it appeared the angel. It, it, he appeared as a, the angel. Um, so he God came. Is, God is omnipresent, so he could be anything. He can be whatever he wants. Right. It could be an angel. It could speak through the fire, the bush, the burning bush. Mm -hmm. All of those things become omnipresent. Whether it's a symbol of the angel uh -huh. or the burning bush, right? Or the in a dream. Mm -hmm. That's. Oh, yeah, we're going to hear about Jeremiah in a minute. Okay, so, so he gets to this cave, and he lodges there. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain of Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke it to pieces, the rocks and into rocks before the Lord. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was, came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, and it killed your prophet, and killed <clears throat> for the Lord of God of hosts. Hosts mean angel armies. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left. They seek my life. To take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. So the Lord gives him three things to do. And he gently says to him, BTW, yet I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed, to, bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So at this point, God, who is, was not in the fire, was not, you know, showing him his stuff. But he wasn't there, and he speaks in this gentle whisper, and he says to Elijah, I've got some, you're not done yet. I'm not done with you. I've given you three things to do. But by the way, there's 7,000 that, that are still truly my worshipers. You're not alone. Um, and you just see that beautiful picture of this mighty earthquake fire God, and that yet he comes with this gentle whispering to Elijah, who was just done in. He was just done in. Um, so he gives him three things to do. Uh, and so Elijah goes and does them. One of them is to appoint Elisha. Um, and he's the next prophet in this litany of great guys. So, But Israel continues to sin. And God continues to send prophets to warn of this impending judgment. Okay, Because his, he is a jealous God and he will not give his glory to, to another. He will not. So we get to Isaiah, who is one of the, my favorites. And Isaiah writes 66 books, which are everyone is awesome. Um, 66 chapters. 
And, um, and it says, in the year that you, can you, I'm in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, in verse 8. And it says, in the king that you, King Uzziah died, I saw, Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, Isaiah is trying to describe God. Now, good luck with that, okay? But this is the best that he can do. Ezekiel's going to do the same thing. Because they are actually seeing God, not all of God, because no man can see his face and live, but some of God, and they are just amazed and humbled. And this is kind of becomes a theme. So uh, above him stood the seraphim, these are angels, each had six wings, two of which covered his face, two covered his feet, and two with the flew. And one called to another, these are the angels, and they said, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, angel armies, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, saying, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of angel armies. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. So this is uh, Isaiah's commission. Again, God gives him this grace of seeing who he really is. So no matter what happens to Isaiah, even at the end of the life when he's sawn in two, he knows who God is. And he's going to be fearful of the one who deserves his honor and fear. Okay, Not these kings, not these other things. He's going to know because he has seen God with his eyes. Um, in Isaiah 42, 8, Isaiah writes, I am uh, of the Lord. I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to none, no other, nor my praise to carved images. Isaiah prophesies because that's one of jo- Isaiah's jobs because all the prophets were saying, if you guys don't clean up your act, God is going to depart God is going to leave you. You are not going to be his nation. People are going to take you captive. Every one of the prophets have said, you, because the covenant that he made with Israel at that point was a conditional covenant. You do and follow me and I will bless your socks off. But if you don't do what and you disobey my rules, I will curse you and I will make you a laughing stock among the nations. And this is what they're interposed right now, history. So Isaiah prophesies in... Um, the, appending, the impending captivity, yet even in the midst of his prophecy of this captivity that is yet to occur, he offers the captives, who are not captives yet, hope. And uh, in Isaiah 50, 43, verse 5 through 7, he says, Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and the west. I will gather you up, and I will say to the north, Give up. To the south, I will say, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and I've made. So the promise is that they're going to go into captivity, but God is going to call them out of captivity. The ones who I've called by my name for my glory, I'm going to call them back. So Isaiah offers hope. He says in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness among the people, but the glory will rise. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen by you. 
So that's Isaiah. So Isaiah prophets prophesies. He's um, and but Israel does not repent. Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, um, is right behind Isaiah, and he's the last to warn Israel before um, the captivity start. And he actually goes into captivity with them. Um, in Jeremiah thirteen fifteen through seventeen, and this is about six hundred BC for those that count. Um, he writes Jeremiah thirteen five, uh, fifteen and seventeen. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight of mountains and you look to your look for light and it turns to gloom and, it, and he makes the deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride and my eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. And that's exactly why he is the weeping prophet. He's crying for them. He's crying because he knows that they are going to be taken captive. So in 722, the Assyrians come down and swoop down and, and take captive the northern kingdoms. And then in 580, well, actually like 600, 600-ish, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and he makes, takes eyes on the southern kingdom. Judah. And um, in 705, the first wave, he, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps down and takes da- Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He scoops down all the high, the cool kids, because he's going to take them and make them in their court. And that starts the book of Daniel. But the, in 586, he, the, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and destroys the temple. And that's really the beginning of the Babylonian captivity and the dispersion where all, <laughs> all the Israelites now, most of them, have left um, because they're, they've, been, they've been taken captive. And they, um, so in captivity, um, uh, God is not done talking. <laughs> so he raises up Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is a prophet that was born in captivity. And uh, I think he was born there. But anyway, he's there. And uh, in Ezekiel 1.3 and then 26 and 28, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest in the land of the Chaldeans. And above the expanse over their head, there was a likeness of a throne. So Ezekiel is seeing a vision of God right now. And in the appearance of sapphire, and seated on the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what that appearance of the waist I saw was gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire all enclosed around him. And downward was that appearance of his waist, and I saw it as the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So the appearance of the brightness was all around, and such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell down on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So that was Ezekiel's commission. He saw God for who he was. You know, it's interesting because, you know, it's interesting that God sort of like clears out a lot of stuff when he does that. Paul had that same experience (laughs) on the Damascus Road. It became very clear to him who was, um, uh, you know, I think it was, well, that God was fearsome. You know, if if you're going to fear somebody, we should fear him because he's the one with all the power. Okay. So, um, so Ezekiel 
takes his commission. He ministers to the exiles in Babylon. And he has a vision, and he's transported to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? He starts at the inner gate, and he witnesses what's happening right now as all the Israelites have left what's happening at the temple. And what's happening in the temple is all the people have come, and they've made it a place to worship idols. So they've set up the sun god. They've set up all these terrible things in God's temple. And um, Jeremiah, it says the angel, picked him up by the lock of his thing. I'm going to read it in a second. And takes him, and he's observing what's happening in Israel. Okay? So in the sixth year of the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month, I'm in Ezekiel 8, 1 through 4. I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting beside me. He's in Babylonia. And the land and the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And when I looked, I behold a form with the appearance of a man. And again, he's seeing the same thing again. Behold, what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out his, the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head. And the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north there was a seat of the image of jealousy which provokes jealousy and behold the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision I saw in the valley so so Ezekiel is has this vision of what's happened what truly is happening in Jerusalem and remember, the temple was God's place where his glory was, okay? And now it's become a, a den of idols. And so what do we see? Um, Ezekiel says in 8, 6, he says, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. So God's exercising his judgment and, his, and he's saying that they are driving me from my sanctuary. Because God's glory can't abide with his sin. So his, his, they're, he's driving me from my sanctuary. Um, God's glory is leaving. And this is what Ezekiel is going to be seeing. And this is what his message is to even the people in exile. That God's glory, because of your sinfulness, is leaving. It's leaving. God's favor on Israel is leaving you. So it says in Ezekiel 10, you, we see this in different steps in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 10, 4, and then 18 and 19 says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub. Remember, it was sitting in the two, the two angels in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, they're facing, the glory was there, was sitting there, to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. Remember the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So Ezekiel now is seeing that the glory of God, which was in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant, is now coming out, and the house was filled with the glory. And then it says in 18 and 19, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted from the earth before my eyes, and as they went out, the wheels besides them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. So the, so the 
the glory of God, which was in the, on the ark, now is going out to the threshold of, it says the threshold of the house, the temple. And now the glory, angels are present, and they're standing at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and that's where the glory is. So you are seeing step by step the glory of God departing from Israel. So um, just to review, just for us, one second. We're talking about the glory of God. The glory of God is basically the sum total of all his attributes. So if you put them all together, Emily did a lesson. Uh, my daughter Emily is working, um, doing STEM stuff with uh, underprivileged kids down in West, in West Palm Beach. And so she has these uh, elementary school kids come and she does like science experiments, but it's a Christian organization. So she... Anyway, so she, uh, we, she was doing the glory, and she made, um, she cut up a puzzle pieces, and all the puzzle pieces were all the different attributes of God. And then when you flip it over, you put the puzzle together, you flip it over, and it says glory of God. <laughs> so there you have it. There's a good visual. If I had one, I'd show it to you. But, but the glory of God is the sum total. And it is um, every time you have encountered, and as we went through the entire Old Testament, anybody that was in the presence of God pretty much saw the radiance, fell down on their face. I am nothing. I'm worthless. Woe is to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And these are good people that are saying this. Because when we compare ourselves with the majesty and the splendor of his holiness, and there's all kinds of you know, beautiful psalm words um, that describe what this awesome glory is, we realize that he, it's really all about him. Remember? It's not about us. In this world has changed it. It's all about us now. Everything is about us. And we even define him in our from our own but he is undefinable he is the uh, he is the self-existent one he is i am that i am so john macarthur writes our life can be can be reduced to living for the glory of god everything we do everything we say everything we think ought to bring glory honor and praise to god that's the qualifying factor in all that we do i mean we only need to ask ourselves one basic question will it glorify god let me tell you, that really kind of speaks to me. Will it glorify God? Uh, is, <clears throat> is it to the glory of God? That becomes the qualifier for every deed done, every thought, every word spoken. Um, will it bring him honor? Uh, the theological definition uh, for glory, as according to Lewis Schaefer, Barry Schaefer, he writes in his systematic theology, it may be observed that regardless of any recognition on the part of its creatures, God is himself a glorious being. See, God's not in heaven saying, oh, I need everyone to recognize my glory. God is glorious. He is what he is. Um, we're only thinking correctly when we give him glory. You get it? So, okay, so then he goes on to say, um, God is himself a glorious being. Glory belongs to him as light and heat belong to the sun. It is therefore becomes a misrepresentation of infinite proportions to withhold from God the worthy acknowledgement of his glory. So I want us to really think about that because this is, you know, when I used to teach um, and in a classroom, your husband knows this, um, Van Marie, 
the, the teacher sets up the whole classroom, you know, and if you have like a student production or whatever, and everyone's saying, oh, that student's doing such a great job and giving him glory, well, they're missing the fact that this teacher has set up everything that's happening, and they're only seeing this little bit, and they're giving glory kind of to the wrong person, right? Well, that's kind of what we do in our world. We give glory to the wrong people. Um, the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But I want you to know that John Calvin said this, and this was the quote that really started this whole study for me. He said, we never truly glory in him until we utterly discard our own glory. Who glories in himself glories against God. Now that is a heavy, heavy statement. And that totally cut me to the quick. Because even in all my beautiful little Christian things that I was doing at the time, I was like, you know what? I was getting a lot of that glory. And that is not honoring to him. That is not honoring to him. Um, because I'm stealing. You know, God's a jealous guy. He said, we went through this Old Testament. He's a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Um, because if we did, it's untruth. He's the creator. It's like when we talked about, again, remember... My favorite guy, Leonardo da Vinci, paints the Mona Lisa. When you go and watch and, and go see the Mona Lisa, nobody's talking about Mona. Everyone's talking about him because they're giving credit where credit's due. He made the Mona Lisa. And we are all talking about Mona. We are living in Mona's world. And we're like, oh, do you see that? She should have wore earrings. No, it, it's not about what Mona. It's about Leonardo. <laughs> So anyway, um, the glory of God is our true north. It is our compass that keeps all of our Christian living, everything that we do, oriented in the right direction towards God and not towards us. And you have to know, because we covered this two weeks ago, you know, in the garden, that's what Adam did. He made it about him. He wanted the, the fruit from the tree of the God, knowledge of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so he can be, just like Satan, like God. He wanted, to be, he, wanted, he wanted it to be about him. He started that, and we have, he has passed on that flesh nature, which I'm telling you, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, and he does not like the new baby. He's like, put that baby down, Mama. <laughs> Play with Eli. <laughs> because, I mean, you say, we are... We are all selfish, and we all have that original sin, unfortunately, was, is pretty true to passing down. So we went last week, and we saw that we were the image bearers. We were created to be reflections of his glory in the Garden of Eden, and that worked for just a little bit. And when we sinned, we sinned and fall short, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And... So starting with creation, we have traced the glory of God all the way back to Malachi. Okay, so we have covered thousands of years. Um, and as Malachi, and well, I should say, as the Old Testament is closing out, we see, and that was Ezekiel's vision. You remember he got picked up by his hair um, in his vision and sent to Jerusalem where he observed the glory of God slowly departing. It left the ark, then it left, it was at the door of the temple, and then it eventually left 
the temple, and then it was out of Jerusalem. We saw the glory of God depart, and then we had 400 years of nothing, nothing. Um, so there were no bright lights, no glimmers, just the blackest of nights, and the world waits. But then Matthew opens the New Testament with, in Matthew 2, 2, and then there was a star in the east. God didn't speak in a whirlwind or a thunder. His glory wasn't revealed in fire. But in the fullness of times, he did his most glorious work in a little town called Bethlehem where he broke the silence with the baby's cry. You have to realize that is exactly what happened. He broke his silence because this was his most glorious work and it was going to be Jesus. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So while the earth was quiet, heavens rang. Luke 2, 8-14, And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the King. And this will be a sign to you that you will find this baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of a heavenly host. Can you imagine thousands of angels Popping into the sky, these guys were like totally freaked out. I like the suddenly. Yeah, suddenly. Um, uh, Appeared with the angel, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. So here's, we have this dichotomy. We have the things that the world sees, quiet, nothing. And then we have what's happening spiritually, this huge cacophony of praise and worship. I'm pointing that out because so that we can see that sometimes what is going on on earth is different from what is happening in heaven. We're going to get back to that. I thought about that this morning. What's going on on earth is sometimes different than what's happening in heaven. So God was going about to do his greatest work Uh, Man in general, all through the Old Testament, would not glorify God despite all of the avenues God provided. And we went through this in two weeks. The garden, the patriarchs, the law, the judges, the kings, the temple, the prophets. Man's heart was made of stone. Paul summarizes man's plight in Romans 1, 20 through 23. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that for the people they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, and their thinking became futile and their foolish heart was darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they were fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. That is the conundrum. That is the problem. And the solution is going to be this little baby. Um, Before the glory departed, 
remember in Ezekiel? Ezekiel prophesies in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. He said, and I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh and they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they will be my people and I will be their God. So God was trying to do some heart surgery. After all of the whole Old Testament, he tried many, many different things and even giving them like a brand new world and none of that worked because man's heart um, was desperately wicked, like Jeremiah says. So he's going to do something about the heart. And that's where Jesus comes in. Um, God was about to do heart surgery, and not just for Israel, but for everyone. Um, Brian Chapel writes, and this is so beautiful, the revelation occurs in various stages and degrees in scriptures. Sometimes we get glimmers of glory, as in the burning bush, Sometimes the glory blinds, as in Saul's Damascus Road encounter. Sometimes the glory whispers, as in the still, small voice of Elijah, for Elijah. And sometimes glory thunders, as in Sinai. But our clearest and most powerful revelation of the glory of God comes from somebody who has experienced it the most. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 2.9, he is the image of God made incarnate to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's your memory verse. In Christ, we have our most complete definition of the glory of God. So I just, all of what I said before was not glory. Didn't, this is God's solution and it's in the face of of his own son. Now remember, God doesn't share his glory. So when you hear Jesus saying, oh, the glory goes to him, and God says, I'm glorifying him, you got to realize that's why we know they are one, okay? That's, that's, you know, that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, so God looked down through the ages of time, and you know what he saw? He saw you. He wanted you to have this opportunity. Um, in fact, when Simeon, when the baby Jesus is dedicated to the temple and Simeon the prophet is there, remember that story? Um, you guys get, get all, we're going to be in Christmas before you know it. <laughs> in Luke 2, 30 through 32, it says, Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to be dedicated. And Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, that's us, and the glory of your people Israel. So this little baby was for everyone. We kind of we lost that train in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, there is a lot of people, some scientists, Christian scientists say that, you know, if God ever lets go, everything would just explode. <laughs> that he actually physically is holding the universe together um, by his mighty hand. So anyway, 
Jesus becomes the true image bearer. So Jesus has come to fix the problem that Adam started and we all participated in. He is the second Adam. And he comes in and he lives in obscurity for 33 years until he and his mom were invited to a wedding in Cana. And it says in John 2, 11, what Jesus did there in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus didn't do much of anything until that was the first miracle. And that was brought the disciples that he brought, not all of them were there, to, to Cana and they believed in him. So that's the beginning. Jesus, though, was not just our savior although I can live and talk about that for a very long time. <laughs> he also was our teacher. He was our role model. And so he, um, so we could, like Peter says, follow in his steps, okay? So I, I want us to back off the Savior, and I want you to him just to think of as a role model. So he lived a life so that we could live like he lived. He said, I am a servant. I want you to be a servant. I am this. I want you to be this. So that's, what, that's kind of what was his M.O., because he knew we were slow. <laughs> so we had to see it, not just say it. So anyway, so what we find in the Gospels, and I'm going to give you a bunch of verses. We're going to read them in a minute. What we see in the Gospel about Jesus was that Jesus was never about his own glory. He was all about the Father's glory. And that got me to thinking that if Jesus is all about God's glory, shouldn't we also be about God's glory? And, and so let's read some verses about that. John 7, 16 through 18, um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he said, so Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will... He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He, this is important, because he's distinguishing himself from the Pharisees and the rest of every man, <laughs> including me. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, there is, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So when we see things clearly and we are giving him the glory, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you let your light so shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and give glory to the Father who's in heaven. So John 8, 50 and 54, Jesus says, But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. And then in 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now, we have to know that Jesus set aside the effulgence of his glory. He did not glow like some of the prophets saw in the Old Testament. But he did not, and this is very critical, lay aside any of his divinity. He was 100% God and 100% man. It doesn't make sense in our heads. Good thing, huh? Because he's a little bigger than our heads, so we're, it's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held on to. 
but he emptied himself being born in the likeness of man. Okay? So every once in a while, you, Jesus is walking around. It's kind of like Clark Kent with the Superman. And every once in a while, he'll just pull a shirt and you'll see, ooh, there's the S, the Superman. He's there. <laughs> he, but he doesn't go around showing it to everyone. Okay? Just special people, special times. He shows that he can see. He knows everything. He, he understands men's hearts. He understood the Pharisees' hearts. He understood the, the disciples. God bless them. <laughs> All of their foibles, he totally understood them. And he was preaching to them words that he knew that in two years they would all of a sudden say, oh, that's what he meant. <laughs> that's a good teacher. Um, so Jesus condemns the Pharisees in John 5, 39 through 44. Why does he condemn them? Listen, he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it, but it is them that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. How can, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Honestly, I kind of feel like this is probably one of the more systemic problems with women today. Um, we are all looking for glory from one another. Man, we are sometimes awful about that. Uh, did you like my new shirt? Oh, how do you like my new things? Oh, do you see my new car, my new boat? You know, we're seeking glory, glory from one another. Paul says that if you compare yourselves with others, you're not wise. That's Paul's nice way of saying you're foolish, okay? So, but, but this was the Pharisees' problem. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? So we know that Jesus came as the poster child to show us that we are to only work for his glory, okay? So the payday is not here. And Jesus is very clear with the, with the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you do all these righteous things. You know, you give your alms, you do all this, only to be seen by men. Like, hope you enjoy it, because that's all it's doing for you right there, right then. And ladies, I'm just saying that in our culture, that is kind of a, a problem that I see that honestly is based in our own insecurity, um, and yet God has given us his only son to die for our sin so that we can have fellowship with him. And we're worried about having new clothes or a new car or something like that. I mean, like, where is our security supposed to be? It's really supposed to be in him. Um, and if he says we're good, guess what? You're good. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, not to man. Right? That's, we're, we're getting there. That's next week, but we're going there. Okay. So I just want you to realize that John 8, Jesus has further discussion with the disciples. In, in 848, he says, But I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. He's talking about his Father. And then the, disciples, the Pharisees ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? They 
wanted to him to say he was the Messiah so they could kill him. He's not going to say it. <laughs> you know who he told he was the Messiah to? The Samaritan woman. <laughs> My favorite person because she was at the lowest end of society. And Jesus is talking to the uppity ups right here. So he, Jesus says he responds in verse, verse 40, 54 of chapter 8 in John. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. Now, actually, if you read John 8, they come to fisticuffs in this. Um, he eventually says to them, well, who, you know, anyway, the, the last chapter, the last verse in that, um, Jesus said, you know, they say, oh, you're, you're Abraham's seed, blah, 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 blah. And he says, well, and then he looks at him and he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's Yahweh. I am that I am. He, that was his, really Jesus's largest claim to being God is when he said that, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am that I am. And they knew it because they picked up stones to kill him. Because he, that was a, a claim that he was divinity right there. And their response in the Old Testament was somebody claimed to be a God. There's only one God. Then you're supposed to stone him. But it was not his time. And he left. Okay, so. Let me just say that he, even though they wanted him to do, I mean, they, he did all these miraculous signs and they weren't going to believe because they didn't want to believe. And honestly, ladies, that's really, the reason why most people are not saved is because they don't want to be lost. You know, they don't want, they, they, they're busy around, they're, they're looking for glory. They're saying, oh, you know, can I be important? Can you if say I, that again, the reason why? is because they don't want to be lost. So you have to be lost first. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to recognize that they need they God. They don't recognize your lost nature. Right. Mm -hmm. because, they, because that somehow speaks ill of them. Rather than <laughs> speaking the truth that we all, as believers, we all say, no, there's none righteous, no, not one. Like they have a weakness. Right. And that's why God in 1 Corinthians, oh, that's a good passage, one where he says, God is not called the the great of this world. He's called the foolish things and the weak things of this world so that nobody can boast before him. And Paul says the only way to boast is to boast in Jesus, right? So anyway, okay, so we've got to keep going. So, so God, so God, so Jesus is God and Jesus is walking around these 33 years and he's showing, he's telling his disciples all these different things. There is a time where he does pull aside his, his, um, his everyday clothes and show them his glory. And I'm going to read you that story. And that is in Luke 9, 23 through 36. And you know me, I almost like have to quote the whole Bible to like get you prepped for this verse. <laughs> um, Luke 9, 23 through 36. Jesus is preaching and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For if anyone would save his life, he needs to lose it. If he who loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he's the top dog, if he's Bezos or whoever is the richest person today, but forfeits his own soul? That's what Jesus asked. That's a great question to ask people. 
Uh, what does it profit? And then he says in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the 12 disciples are like, I wonder who that is. Eight days later, if you read verse 28, about eight days after these things, he took, Jesus took Peter and John and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Oh, I love that. Because we just studied Moses and Elijah. Remember Moses was, oh, he's like my favorite guy. In the midst of all these complaining, whining <laughs> people, he's like stood so tall for what God wanted him to do. And, but he, and he saw the cloud, remember, and he was in the cloud and he would shield his face. We're going to get more into that. But finally, he gets to see Jesus. He gets to see God face to face right here. And Elijah, we know, I didn't tell you this part about Elijah. Elijah, you know, hears the still soft voice and God gives him a job, you know, and says, quit whining, you got work to do. But then when Elijah does his things, God takes, sends a chariot of fire and picks him up. Elijah never actually died. He went straight to be with the Lord. It was like he walked and he was walking with God so closely. God said to him, you know, I think we're a little closer to my house than yours. Why don't you come on out? <laughs> so, so, uh, so Elijah, okay, get to be with Jesus in glory. And not only are they getting to be in glory, listen carefully, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So he was getting, he had phoned a friend. Jesus was phoning a friend here. And because he wanted to talk to these people who really understood what was happening about his departure, how he was going to go into Jerusalem and die for everyone, okay? So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them, and the men were parting from them, and Jesus said, and Peter said to Jesus, Master, whoa, 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 whoa. It's, it's, it's good that we're here, um, he said, why don't, let's, let me just make three tents real quick. And one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, Peter was talking about the tents, because he wanted to like, let's, we're having a kumbaya moment here. Let's all just stay here forever, okay, in this glory. Because it's, glory of God is an attractive thing. You want to be there, okay? So he wants to stay there and and so he, as he was saying these things, a cloud, remember the cloud, Jesus in the cloud, God in the cloud, came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Remember Old Testament, the cloud was God. That's the cloud. It was the pillar of cloud that led them all through the desert, the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Uh, Matthew adds in his account, because I wanted you to get this, because you'll see the symbolism between um, Old Testament and New Testament. 
Matthew 17, 5 through 8. He was still speaking with them, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, guess what they did? They did every same thing as the Old Testament. They fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came, and he touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up his eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Is, I mean, you see the awesomeness of God, and yet you see his tenderness, and you see these disciples like, oh, what just happened? <laughs> just what just happened here? But again, these were the men that were going to lead his church, and they had to, they, Jesus showed them the rest of the story. What was really going to happen? See, when we go, when we die, we go to glory. That's what... Every spiritual hymnal, every spiritual song, it's about glory. Where do we go? We go to glory. Um, and it's a great place. Peter just wanted to stay right there. Okay, so, okay, Matthew, uh, Jesus warned that the, the disciples that the cost of following him, um, and he prophesied that eventually he's going to return in glory. Now, this is like two weeks' lessons. We're going to talk about that a lot. But I want you to hear what he says because I want you to realize that this is... the we, Before we get the glory part, we have to get the first part. The first part's not so fun. So this is what he says in Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus said to his disciple, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is very similar to the other passage I just said. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory, in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. Remember I told you there is a test. There's a test, and he is going to come back just like he's, you know, when he did that parable of the, you know, give the talents away. He's going to come back and say, what have you done with all these talents? Did you bury them, or did you make? What's happening? Um, okay, so now we're almost at the end of Jesus' life here. We get to Palm Sunday. Luke nineteen thirty-seven through 40 um, is Palm Sunday. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because remember, God doesn't share his glory. But this is how we know Jesus is God. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered him, I tell you, if these were quiet, the very stones would cry out. Um, because all of nature, all of creation, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. So all through John, Jesus tells his disciples, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. Yet the week before his death, he tells them in John 12, 23 through 36, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, and this is he's predicting, now the disciples totally did not get any of this. The only people that I think got this honestly were the ladies. 
I'm just saying, that's my idea. Um, Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if he dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for for eternity. But whoever serves me, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. So Jesus is predicting that in this time that he's saying that I'm going to be glorified, he's saying to them, I'm going to die. Um, They totally didn't get it, okay? That how could God be glorified in his own son dying? That was a great mystery. The cost of redeeming man and performing this heart surgery that was Jesus' task when he came weighed on Jesus. See, not only was he 100% God, he was 100% man. And the idea of him bearing the sins of the world was so hard. It was so tough. Um, in John 12, 27 through 32, Jesus says, And now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it said, and and it thundered, and others said, oh, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, now. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, now. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all, not just the Jews, all people to myself. Isn't that a beautiful prophecy? Jesus wrote that though there were many signs most did not believe, um, so that the word that Isaiah had said, you know, uh, which we talked about last time, um, would come to effect. In fact, it says, uh, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke to them. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of their synagogue. For they love the glory, I want to say that again, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's the indictment of Jesus' generation right there. Um, and that was in John 12, 39-43. Okay, so then John gets, uh, John is chronologically telling us what's happening next. And he goes, um, John writes about the night that Jesus was betrayed. It's, um, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's John 13 through 17. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and he blesses them with the Lord's Supper. Jesus leaves to betray his master. And Jesus says in John 13, 31 and 32, right now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So what I want you to see here is that this glory that we've been looking for is going to happen on the cross. You're like, that doesn't sound very glorious to me. But that is when God, that's when God buys us back. And that's a glorious thing. So Jesus in John 15 gives the disciple his la- disciples his last allegory. We went through this when we did Portrait of Jesus. And the last I am was I am the vine and 
branch. I am the vine and you are the branches. So in John 15, five through 11, uh, he's gonna be talking about abiding and he's gonna tell them how God now will be glorified, okay? Wait for it, okay. Abide, according to um, Kenneth Wiest, who is in it, a scholar of Greek, says abide, the best translation for abide is to be in living communion, okay? It's to remain, it's to be one with, okay? Be in union with, living communion, okay? So let me read this to you, and I want you to think about that. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is him that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nada. Giving you the heads up. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this... Is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples? As the father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Live in my love. Be in living communion always with my love. Be in living. People misinterpret that. Yes. That abiding. Oh, and it, well, that's why. it has to be in his well, yeah, and it, it's like we don't, get him to, we don't get him to come alongside of our will. <laughs> that would be so wrong. We have to give up our will. He's just said that in that verse I just read. And that's what he did. He gave up his own will to have God's will, and that's, that's you know, the abiding is we come to him, not him coming to us. Okay, so, yeah. Now, in terms of fruits, mm-hmm. should be all producing f- fruit if they're abiding. What if negative fruit happens and who's responsible for negative fruit if there's more than one person? So let's say you have a situation. Okay. Um, I don't know. Um, let me give an example. I'm trying to see. Okay. Um, there's Well, I mean, here's the thing. You're yeah. talking about only God can look into our hearts and see, and God and will judge us, um, and he will repay us for our deeds. And it says, and in, in even believers, I mean, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 um, that, you know, there's wood, hay, and stubble. We'll be doing things 
for the wrong reasons, and those are going to all burn up, but we're going to be saved as if by fire, okay? But he says, if you do the things that are in my will, those are like gold, and that, that's going to come and be shining, and we'll get a reward for that. But you're not, it might not come to fruition right now, but you're, if you're in the community and you're doing your part, I think what, what you're saying is if you're in the community and you're abiding in the Lord and you're doing your part, but there's other people who aren't abiding in the Lord, but they're just doing works of the flesh or works yeah. of their own glory, then you're doing it for the right reason. They're not. God might not honor the project or whatever's going on right now. He might not honor what's going on. doesn't mean he's not honoring your abiding. Correct. And it's not, you have to realize that he sees it all. He knows it all. And like, for example, like I've been trying to get these kids to come to church for six months now. And what was I waiting for? I was really waiting for Rachel because God put it on her heart that to do this. So now, again, I had tried but for you six were months. In but you kept right. and, you kept... and so God brought that to fruition. <laughs> All the other things that, you know, were falling and, and not working out, um, again, it just wasn't his time. You have to realize God's so smart. <laughs> he, he has this all figured out, and he will repay. I mean, because what you sow, baby, you reap. And, and again, it's, and he will do it in his time, in his own way. It might be with a whole different resource. You may tithe your money and he may give you grandchildren. I, it doesn't really, he, but he will bless you when you, in his spirit, do what he tells you to do. Yeah. So if we are living in him mm -hmm. and his word is living in us, mm -hmm. I think the things we ask for change. Oh, absolutely. You know, you're not going to ask for things that you know are outside of his will. Right. And so you're thinking as you learn and grow, you know, it changes. No, exactly. And that's really where we're going to talk about that next week, actually, more, uh, uh, Claudia, because we're going to talk about the process of sanctification, which the end of the process of sanctification, which is the growth of the believer from salvation until um, we get to heaven it's we are, we're justified, we're um, sanctified, and then we get glorified. So the end of that is our glorification when we actually know Him as and be fully know, as we, know Him fully as we are fully known. Woo! I can't wait. But but that's really next week. So let's let's. But quickly, mm -hmm. sorry, Claudia, you can become frustrated. Is that what you're saying? Like if you're the only one that's abiding mm -hmm. and everyone else isn't abiding, mm -hmm. they're coming. Mm -hmm. no, you're not saying frustrated. Mm -hmm. yeah. But God sees and knows and will reward us, maybe not here, maybe in here. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know what I was thinking, too? There's also tests that mm -hmm. you have to pass. Mm -hmm. So because, you know, you can't really, yeah, you don't know the other person's motives. You don't know, maybe they did hear that from God, mm -hmm. but it was um, just testing and to see what kind of, what would happen. Mm -hmm. And well, I guess in that case, the fruit wouldn't be the point. Mm -hmm. We need to see the person's reactions or the people's reactions. Well, again, I we're going to talk more about what is fruit next yeah. week because there's a lot of fruit. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like other people mm -hmm. becoming Christians or the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience. That there's a lot of things that God considers fruit, mm -hmm. and we're gonna, like I said, and and that's what comes when we abide. Mm -hmm. 
He does the heavy lifting, though. The, the, the verb in this verse is not produce fruit. It, the verb is abide. Our job is to abide. His job is to produce the fruit. And when we're in line with him, when we are one with him in this vine, that's a natural thing that will happen. It's not something that I have to work at, but we'll talk more about it. And after, yeah, next week, if you still have questions after we go over that, um, then we'll, we'll address them then. So Jesus says, um, I am the vine. Uh, in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. And he says, and I'm going to just read little excerpts. Um, because he's really ta- praying for all about glory. Um, his glory, our glory. God's glory. Um, actually, the upper room discourse, it's one of the three major themes is glory. Um, so John 17, it's going to be 1, 4, and 5, 9, 10, 20, and 24. Jesus spoke these things while he's speaking. This is the end of the upper room discourse. He turns now and starts praying. And who's he praying for? He's praying for everyone. And he says, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son. That the Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He wants to go home. This is all about him going home. He said, I prepared a place for you, and it's going to be great, but I want to go there. And he wants them to see him in his glory. He's going to pray for that. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and all the things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. Oh, I said that twice. Okay. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Do you know how much love? God, God loves you with the same amount of love he loved his own son. Isn't that crazy? Um, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So talk about what Jesus is looking for is this, that glory is when we're all in him together. When I'm in him, he's, like we don't even know. Like here, you know, the vine. Where's the vine start and the branch? When does the vine end and the branches start? Who, who knows? That's how close we're to be with him. We don't, we're not supposed to know where he ends and where we start because we're to be one in him and we're all to be in, in the God the Father. But this is tough. What Jesus wanted to do to bring us back, to buy us back into him, was not an easy job. Remember, we talked about his agony. And he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, 42 through 44. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, it's not my will, but yours. Be done. 
And then, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Despite the agony, Jesus set his face at that moment towards the cross, and he would become what John the Baptist proclaimed at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, would, he could have called 10,000 angels, but instead he submits to the mockery of a trial, the scourging, and the cross. And in the fullness of time, he gave up his life for you um, and for me. And in verse Matthew 27, 50 and 51, I want you to get the significance. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, remember the curtain of the temple that separated the holies of holies because nobody could get in there except the high priest who would only go in there once a year to lay up perfect lamb and, and, and pay for the sins of the people for that year. He, God ripped the curtain of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Do because you know, you know, the dimensions of that curtain, it wasn't just a curtain. You know, I it was, remember, yeah, I have it. Really, really wide. Yeah. It was, I want to say it was at least three inches thick. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I had a, it's on my other study, but yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, I, and it was from top to bottom. It was huge. Um, but what a beautiful picture of God saying, he paid the price and now you can come to me. Come to me. You don't have to be far. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. Remember, the temple was where God's glory resided in the Old Testament. The curtain kept everyone out of the holies of holies except the high priest. Um, when he went in to, make, to take a sacrifice, a spotless lamb for the sins of the people, God the Father ripped it from top to bottom to signify the path to his glory is open through the shed blood of the lamb. Uh, Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 say, We will see him for just a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death but that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he, for whom all things, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many of his sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Man, it's amazing. Again, what the world saw was victory for the Romans, victory for the Pharisees. But what God saw was all, was that Satan was now on a leash and his time and his days were numbered. A proper sacrifice had been made for the world to be redeemed. Yep. Death could not keep him in the grave on the third day as proof of God's acceptance of Christ's substitutionary death. Romans 6, 4 says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So Jesus walks around <laughs> for 40 days, shows himself to like 500 people. Um, and Jesus is, um, let me back up here. Um, Jesus spends 40 days and, in, and then after his 40 days and... <clears throat> Luke tells the story of Christ's ascension to glory. 
And that's in Acts 1, 6 through 8. Yes. Yep, 6 through 11. Okay. Um, so when they had come together, I'm reading Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the seasons or the times that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you, because here's your job. And remember, Jesus only wanted to do what Jesus, what God told him to do. As I didn't do what I want. I'm doing what you want. He's sending us the same way. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That was our job. The great commission was that we were to be the sent ones. He sent us. He sent them. Well, he came so that he sent them and they're sending us. And the Bible is very clear that each one of us has the responsibility to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our job. And he says right here, right before he goes up in the cloud, the cloud, back to the cloud again. He says, my, you are my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. See, your saved life, the fact that I saved you and now you are saved, I want you to just be a witness. Now, some people get witnessing like, like they have to go to training. No, witness, a witness doesn't need to be trained. If you are a witness, say, of an accident, all your job is to tell what happened. And your changed life speaks for itself. Tell your story. You tell your story. And again, you know, I'm, and I'm all for learning scripture and the Romans Road and Evangelism Explosion. I've done all of that. However, it's your story. It's your story that needs to be shared. And what did Jesus do for you? Right. Just telling your story and how it changed your life. Because you, hopefully, we are living in such a way that they see the joy um, that we have in him. And that should, in this world of craziness, if just seeing a peaceful, contented, joyful person, they're like, are you on drugs? <laughs> no, I have Jesus. <laughs> I'm in union. I am in living communion with him. And he, this is what happens, is joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. Of such things, there's no, there's no log about that. So he said, well, back to the scripture, okay? It says, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a, what, cloud <laughs> took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Now, can you imagine? Now, this is sort of amazing. This is just like Elijah with the cow. You know, he is like lifting up and they're all looking at him and he's going into this cloud and they're going, wow, wow. And then these angels come and they say, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking in heaven? <laughs> like, he just left, okay? <laughs> this Jesus, here's the promise, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He's coming. That's going to be not next week's lesson, but the following week's lesson, okay? So we end this lesson worshiping Christ who came to show us the glory of God. He was the perfect model for us to follow. And my, one of really my favorite verses in the New Testament, I know you, I've said that a lot, but one of my truly favorite is your memory verse. 
And then your memory verse is 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. And this is Paul explaining to the Corinthians, who are a little brain dead. He had to do it a bunch of times. He says, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as servants, as slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and here's the momentum, let light shine out of the darkness. Okay, he goes back and he, he's remembering, he's remembering the actual beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. Okay, remember John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He also talks about that whole beginning process, but he's talking about Jesus. And here's Paul saying the same thing, but Jesus Christ the Lord with us, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of what? Of the 